welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve, I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me as we go through it. We'll be there as well as other texts this morning. But we've spent uh, the entire summer taking a look at the Church of Jesus Christ. And specifically what we've been doing is seeing how the universal church is expressed and seen through the ministry of specific local churches God wants you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, He wants you to really live His mission in this world through the local church. Last week, we started wrapping the series up by starting to look at the two ordinances that God has given His church to observe until the return of Christ. And the first one last week, we looked at baptism as that initiatory rite of God's work of salvation through faith, that it is an outward symbol of an inward reality and that is designed to be the first step of obedience that God calls His followers to, to publicly identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. This week we're going to finish our series by taking a look at what uh, I usually refer to as the Lord's Supper. It's also referred to as communion. Either one is fine, but this is the second ordinance that Jesus commanded the church to observe until His return to fully inaugurate His eternal kingdom. And so one easy difference to note between baptism and the Lord's Supper is baptism is commanded to happen once at the beginning of your relationship with Jesus Christ, while communion or the Lord's Supper is commanded to be done in repetition. It is something that the Scripture tells us to do many, many, many times over and over until either we pass away, we die, or the return of Jesus Christ when He fully inaugurates His eternal kingdom. And this is something that at Village Church we do on almost a weekly basis. Uh, there are a few Sundays a year that we don't reflect on the Lord's Supper, whether it be because we're doing baptisms that day or whether it be because it is Easter Sunday. And rather than looking at the death of Christ, we look at the resurrection of Christ with more emphasis. Early on in the ministry of our church, we would miss a few Sundays because Nate forgot to order the cups. And so there were, there were some Sundays where at 7 a.m. we're on the phone trying to hunt down communion cups. What a racket Lifeway has on those. Uh, but the, <laughs> uh, we're, we're better now. We have a better system. We're a little more pro. Not much more, but a little more. But uh, this is something that at our church we do every week. And some churches, I don't know if you grew up and this is different. Many have explained to me that they're not used to the way that we do communion on a weekly basis. And uh, some churches do it once a month. Some churches do it once a quarter. Some churches do it um, when the moon is full in third retrograde. You can't really figure out what the schedule is. Some of you have told me that you don't know if the church you grew up in ever did communion because you can't remember if they ever did. The scripture does not specifically tell us when or how often we are to do it. But if you look at what the scripture does, it treats the Lord's Supper as though it is to be done with frequency. Uh, it, it treats it as though when you gather, you will be doing this, is what the scripture kind of lets us towards. And as I'm going to explain throughout the sermon this morning, we do it on a weekly basis because it brings all of our senses into play. It confronts you, touch, taste, smell, with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and is designed to be something that you are confronted with 
when you go through the Word of God, when you come to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's being taught in the local church. But I do want to kind of put the card on the table that we, of course, view communion, the Lord's Supper, very differently than the Catholic Church does. So if you were raised in a Catholic church, we do not view communion as something that is a means of you receiving more grace from God. It is not a means of grace. It is a symbol of the grace that you have already received. Nor do we uh, believe that uh, the, the bread and juice literally become the body and blood of Christ as uh, is taught in the Catholic Church. And so the Eucharist in the Catholic Church, I'm not going to you know, spend an hour talking about that, but it is completely different than what uh, the Bible actually teaches. And of course, we are a Protestant church, which means we protest the Pope. And uh, so not going to get into that. Just know that they are very, very, very wrong in the way that they view communion. And you can trust me on that. If you don't trust me, let's talk about it from God's Word. And so I want to go ahead and look at what Jesus said as he instituted the Lord's Supper. In Luke 22, Luke records uh, the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples. Starting in verse 14, Luke writes, and he said, when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, and after he had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Number one this morning, I want you to understand that the Lord's Supper is for Christians to reflect on God's faithfulness. The Lord's Supper is for Christians to reflect on God's faithfulness. And so at the beginning of what communion is, it's important that you start with the words of Christ as a follower of Jesus to understand that Jesus himself at this Last Supper was looking backwards at God's faithfulness and what God had done for the redemption of his people. Jesus was gathered in the upper room with his disciples to share what was referred to as the Passover meal in Scripture. And he does this right before, just hours before, he's going to be arrested, crucified, and then, of course, three days after his death, rises from the dead. And he's explaining to his disciples... As you eat this final meal with me, I'm trying to explain to you that the Passover meal has always been about me. The Passover meal was always about Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of all of the prophecies and all that God had given in promises to the nation of Israel. And so Israel had looked at the Passover meal as a reflection on God's redemption, freeing them from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, uh, Moses writes this, as they have just killed the Passover lamb. God had looked to the nation of Israel and he had been giving plagues to Egypt. This is during the time, if you've seen Charlton Heston's movie, Moses is going before Pharaoh and he's saying, let my people go. And he warns them, if you don't let the people go, plagues are going to come upon Egypt. And plague after plague had come. 
Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. He wasn't releasing them. And then the final judgment, the final warning to Pharaoh is if you do not release my people from bondage so that they can go to the promised land, I am going to kill every firstborn son of Egypt. And he tells the nation of Israel as they are in bondage that you need to kill a spotless lamb and you take the blood of that lamb, paint the blood over your doorposts and the death angel that I am sending in judgment of Egypt will pass over your home sparing your firstborn child by the grace of God and he will only kill in judgment the firstborn children of Egypt. And so they do this, and then in Exodus chapter 12, Moses writes this, as they're going to eat the lamb that they have just sacrificed, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all of the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skip down to Exodus 12, 17, where he says, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought you hosts, your hosts rather, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And so on the night that God said it was going to happen, the death angel came, executed all of the firstborn sons of Egypt, both man and animal, but all of Israel as they had painted the blood over their doorposts was spared. And so in Luke 22, Jesus is looking backwards at this and he is saying, what happened in that moment is your sins were symbolically put on that lamb that you sacrificed. But all that Jesus had done in his earthly ministry, he was going to the cross and he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. He wasn't going to just symbolically take their sin. No animal in the Old Testament could literally appease God's wrath for sin. It was always done as a promise to God somehow ultimately dealing with sin for real. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the picture of the Passover meal. Note that in the Passover meal, they only ate the unleavened bread and the cup. They did not continually kill the Passover lamb because it was a picture of Christ. The sacrifice had been done. It didn't need to be done over and over. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to the cross. And the book of Hebrews explained to us it was going to be a once for all sacrifice. So we do not, as Christians, observe the Passover meal. And from time to time, I've been asked, why don't we observe the Passover meal? Because it's over. Because it's been eradicated. It's been fully explained. It's been fully absorbed by Jesus Christ. And the Passover meal is now the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal is now communion. So we aren't just looking back as Israel did to Egypt. We are looking back as followers of Jesus Christ to the cross of Christ. And as Jesus explains in Luke 22, every time we reflect on this meal, we look to God fulfilling his promises through Jesus Christ.
And so just as Israel looked back, we too look back. We look backwards, but we also look to the present. In Exodus 24, 7 through 8, we see Moses presenting the book of the covenant to the nation of Israel. And as he does this, he throws blood on all of the people in the crowd. It says in verse 7, Then he took the book of the covenant, he read it in the hearing of the people, reminding them of the Passover. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. You are very thankful I don't throw blood all over you every time I'm up here reading from the Word of God. I know I'm thankful because I feel like that's kind of gross. I feel like somebody would probably call... Uh, you know, the health department on us, again, if that happened. I mean, that happened a few, few times a couple years ago. Well, not talk about it now. Didn't work. I'm still here. So, so the reason that Moses is throwing the blood out on the people is because they've just proclaimed, we will be obedient. But what's vital for you to understand in the grace of God is your obedience is never 100%. Your obedience is never perfect. Your obedience is never sufficient to meet the standard of God. And so throughout the Old Testament, I mean, read the book of Leviticus. It is a bloody, bloody book. I mean, when the priests are inaugurating uh, the tabernacle and, the, and then the, ultimately the temple, they're putting blood behind their ears. They're putting blood on people's foreheads, on their big toe. I mean, it's blood everywhere. It was a blood bath. But what's happening every time you see the symbolism of blood taking place in Scripture is it is a reflection that even when you are seeking to obey God, you need the forgiveness of God to meet His standard. You need Him to work forgiveness for you because you are insufficient in everything that you can do to meet His standard. So why don't we still do that to this day? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Blood represents life in the body. I don't know if you know this, but blood's supposed to be in the body. And so when it starts to come out of the body, there's a problem. And if enough blood comes out of your body, your heart's going to stop pumping. You're going to die. And so God has designed human life to exist with blood flowing through your body. But when it comes out of the body, it represents life leaving the body. And so the reason the Old Testament is so vivid in its depictions of life leaving the body through blood is because death always casts over sinful man. It's always something that we need to be cognizant of. It's always something that we need to remember, that our sin ultimately must be paid for by the temporary nature of life and the fact that you are going to die. But that high cost of life leaving the body was ultimately paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And he would pay with his very Blood, the price paid to appease the penalty of sin that you owe to God was literally the body and blood of Christ. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the price has been paid. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that boundary, the death of sin that stands between you having a reconciled relationship with God, it's gone. 
You can be renewed. You can be reconciled to God. And the beauty of communion is it represents you coming and you eat and you drink and you are welcome to the table of God because he has fully and in a very bloody way paid the penalty for your sin. And Jesus paid the price and applied his grace to you. So we look backward, but we also live in the present where we say, I am forgiven. I have been reconciled with God. I can eat and drink at his table because of his grace. But secondly, this morning, I want you to understand that the Lord's Supper represents the Christian fellowship with God and each other. The Lord's Supper represents the Christian fellowship with God and each other. Not only do we look backward, not only do we look at the present, but we also are forced in communion to look inward. We're to look inside of ourselves. So the cross of Christ, yes, as God's redemption of Israel from Egypt is about what God does for us. There's nothing you can do to earn the right to eat and drink at the Lord's table. There's nothing you can do to earn your forgiveness. There's nothing you can do to earn credit with God. He does it for you. And throughout the entire arc of Scripture, it's always about what God does for us. It's not about what we do for God. But God's purpose of doing all of this is to create for himself a people that worship him, depend on him, and obey him. Sinful human beings, though, we always take what God's designed as good and typically turn it into something else, thus ruining it and making it sinful. And this is the problem that you see in the New Testament with the church at Corinth. Corinth was a church that started out going the right way, making disciples. But if you read First and Second Corinthians, you know this is a church that's lost its way. They're disobedient to God. They're taking worship of Jesus Christ, mixing it with pagan religions, and they are turning it into things that are ultimately going to be seen as perverted even sexually. And this was a church that had muddied the gospel, and they had turned the worship of God into a mixture of pagan and Christian practices. But in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul has to even deal with the way that they are practicing the Lord's Supper. They had turned it in a way, and Paul points out two problems with the way that they're doing it. First, they're using it as an opportunity to exclude Christians that are in poverty. They're saying the only way you can come to the Lord's table is if your economic status is higher. And Paul says, how can you do that? You didn't earn your right to be at this table. How can you turn anyone away regardless of economic level? But secondly, they had turned communion into a mixture of pagan and Christian where they were mimicking pagan gluttony rituals and acting as though, and, and I tell you, in Rome and in Greece, there was a pagan practice of eating until you would vomit. And it was called a gluttony ritual, and it was a sick practice, and they were trying to bring that in with the way that they would practice the Lord's table. Therefore, the Apostle Paul writes, seeking to correct this by warning them that if they pervert the Lord's Supper, there would be consequences in facing God's judgment now and in the future. And so I want to read what the Apostle Paul says to them, starting in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, 
Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So up to that point, he's just reiterating what Jesus had also said. He even starts by saying, I've got the same instructions you've got. But then he continues, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged." And then in verse 32, he even writes that they're going to be condemned because of their practice. So you see four things that he says is going to happen. In verse 27, guilt. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no guilt, right? So what is he saying? You're not a Christian. Second thing he says, verse 29, you're going to come under judgment. Third thing he says in verse 30, you're going to die. You're going to come to death. Fourth thing he says in verse 32, you will receive condemnation. So in verse 28, though, he tells them how to handle this. What does he say? He says, examine yourself. He says, the solution to the problem is as simple as taking some personal inventory. And the first thing that they obviously needed to take inventory of was they needed to take stock of the validity of their faith in Jesus Christ. Ask yourself the question before you reflect on the Lord's Supper. Am I a Christian? Every Sunday when we reflect on the Lord's Supper, I do give that warning. I say, if you are not a follower of Jesus, do not eat and drink. Do not lie. Why? Because to lie and take part in the Lord's Supper unworthily, without faith in Christ, will serve to sink you further into the lie that you are forgiven without faith in Jesus. Therefore, you will be condemned. Look inwardly. Consider the validity of your faith and the fruit of the salvation in your life. Is there a testimony of your faith? In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul warns, he says, sin begets sin. It sinks you further and further into a self-deception. The most deceiving person in your life is you. No one will lie to you more than you will lie to yourself. And the Scripture warns us over and over, you don't fix one lie with another lie. You don't fix one sin with another sin. When you sin to cover your sin, you create more sin, thus it cascades and it ultimately becomes an avalanche of sin. Well, if you lie about your faith in Jesus Christ... Ultimately, what you run the danger of is there comes a point where you start lying to yourself and you might convince yourself, well, I feel forgiven, therefore I am forgiven. I just did it in a way without Jesus Christ being involved. Therefore, I'm fine. I don't need to be saved. That's the ultimate self-deception. And if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you will get yourself to that point. So you must look inwardly and say, is there any evidence in my life that I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Am I producing fruit of salvation? Do I desire Christ? Do I want to obey Christ? Do I love Christ? If not, don't lie. 
But you also need to look outward just as much as you need to look inward because it's not just an inward evidence. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be doing things like a Christian would do things. You're going to literally have outward obedience to the commands of Christ. And so the first question you look outside and say is, am I reflecting what Christ has commanded me to reflect? When he says, don't do something, do I try not to do it? When he says, do something, do I do it? But also, even as a church, the pastors have a responsibility in this to look at the way we practice communion and say, is this the way Jesus told us to do it? Am I excluding anyone that should be included? In other words, the, uh, the, the sin of the church at Corinth was they were looking at people who were poor and they were saying, you don't measure up. You're not allowed to come to the Lord's table. Are we excluding anyone that shouldn't be excluded based on something that the Bible doesn't tell us to do? But also, are we including people that we shouldn't include? There must be a barrier put in place to the Lord's table that we can't take down. And that barrier, of course, is faith in Jesus Christ. Have you ever tried to make someone feel better about being unsaved? In other words, there might be someone in the room who's really struggling saying, I don't think I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't have any fruit of salvation. I don't know if Jesus is God. I don't know that he has redeemed me. Have you ever had the temptation to use the gospel as a therapeutic tool rather than a path of repentance? In other words, have you ever been tempted to look at somebody and say, oh, no, I'm sure you're fine. I'm sure deep down inside you're really a good person. You have nothing to worry about. Go ahead, eat, drink, be a part of this, even if you don't think that you are a Christian. Friends, sometimes we do nice things thinking that they're loving things, even though they're condemnable things. The gospel is not therapy. The gospel is salvation. The gospel is faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is he paid my sin debt when I couldn't so that I could become a follower in relationship with God for eternity. If you try to make someone feel better about the fact that they're not a follower of Jesus by including them on something that they shouldn't be included on, well, that's sin in your life and you need to take stock in that. Do we trust God's provision? Look at the life I'm living personal question I ask myself all the time, am I living in any willful, continual, unrepentant sin? And in the New Testament, many connect what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11 to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, through 23. Here's what Jesus said. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come, offer your gift. He uses relationships with other people as the example here, but I don't think he's being exhaustive. There's so many more sins that could be included here as well. And he's saying don't offer a ritual religious offering when you know there is sin in your life that you are not dealing with. The example that he uses here is, is there an offense between you and a brother? Now, this is also a way of God telling you to take inventory of the faith in your life. And we can get this wrong too. So I want to caution you of two polar extremes that you can take this to. Is that sometimes people will get themselves into a place where they're like, well, goodness, I could never take communion. I've always got problems in my life. 
There's always some kind of sin going on in my life. So until I'm perfect, I can't eat and drink. And I would caution you there. When I was young, I've been in church for many years. When I was a teenager, we would practice communion. I remember, man, it was the first Sunday night of every month. It was a Sunday evening service, and it was really religious. <laughs> All right, I just, just imagine the most religious way a Protestant could do it, and that's how we did it. It was fine, but there would always be a moment where he would warn us if we had any unrepentant sin, and we ate and drank. And I will tell you, 14-year-old Steve, I don't know that he said this. What I heard was, if you have any sin in your life that you haven't confessed, you're going to die and go to hell tomorrow. Okay? I don't think that's what he said, but 14-year-old Steve heard that, okay? And so I would sit there in the moment of reflection that they would have, and I would be terrified. I'd be like, uh, God, there's literally any sin in my life. I need you to tell me right now because I need to get it right because they're coming and they're going to pass the bread out. And if I have any unconfessed sin, I don't know what to do in that moment because I don't want to get hit by a bus and die tomorrow. In the 90s, we were all terrified of Ebola. So I always took the discipline of the Lord. I don't want to get Ebola, Lord. I don't want to die. So I would sit there. Like some Sundays, I would just be almost shaking in fear that I was going to somehow eat and drink unworthily. And you get yourself to a point where you're like, oh my goodness, I yelled at my kids in the car on the way to church. I better not eat and drink before we go home. And I tell my kids, I'm sorry. Oh my goodness, I said something to my wife yesterday and I know she was unhappy about it. So if I don't get that right before I eat and drink, problems are going to come my way and I might go to hell. Oh no, I left my underwear on the wrong side of the bed last night. And if my wife sees it, I better go home, do all of my laundry, fold it all really nice before I can eat and drink and have communion. Oh no, when I was 14, 32 years ago, I stole a candy bar from the 7-Eleven that's been closed for 20 years. I better find the owner, pay restitution somehow. What's the interest rate over 32 years? I'm not really sure. How much was a Snickers in 1993? I don't even know, but I better find him, get it right before I eat and drink or I'm going to eat and drink unworthily and be damned to hell forever. I know some of you might have the personality where you do that every Sunday here in Village Church. And I want you to understand you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to measure up. You're always going to have some sin, no matter how small in your life. So what do you do? Is the answer perfection or no bread and cup? That's not where the scripture leads us because you're going to get to a place in your life where you think you have to earn your keep in the kingdom of heaven. Well, friends, here's the deal. You're never going to make it. You're never going to be perfect. You're always going to have some form of disobedience, no matter how small, in your life that needs to be dealt with. And so when you come face to face with the communion meal, the ultimate question you have to ask yourself is, do I have any willful continual unrepentant sin that I'm refusing to deal with in my life. If you do, don't go to the other extreme and say, I can sin all I want and grace will just grow bigger and bigger. I'm going to eat and drink even when I'm mistreating people, even if I have no fruit of salvation in my life. Both of those polar extremes deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both of them. If you have sin in your life, 
deal with it because dealing with it is a fruit of salvation. But if you have sin in your life that you take to the cross, even in a moment, understand that the love and grace of God is so good, Jesus paid your way to come and eat and drink. You never could have earned that to begin with, so you're never going to earn it in your life to end with either. If you've received the grace of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. You're made new. Come to the table. Don't, though, misunderstand the principle. You confess your sin to God, put it under the blood of Jesus, and you depend on His faithfulness while you are seeking to grow in your faithfulness. But if you won't repent, that means you aren't a Christian, so you can't come to the table. Thirdly, understand, the Lord's Supper confronts people with the offense of the gospel. The Lord's Supper confronts people with the offense of the gospel. Communion confronts sinners, and it's supposed to. I think some people are uncomfortable with partaking and practicing Lord's Supper every single Sunday because you know it's going to offend unsaved people. But that's by design. Don't remove that offense. God puts His table at the front of the worship service because He wants you to deal with your sin. He wants to let you know that if you are a sinner, you have a great need for a Savior. The gospel is offensive. No matter how hard we try, there is no way to remove the offense of the fact that our sin separates us from the life of God. You can't remove that offense. You can't remove the offense that when you're separated from the life of God because of your sin, the ultimate penalty that we owe is so severe that you are going to incur the eternal wrath of God. And guess what? Eternal means forever. And the Lord's Supper confronts every single one of us with that. There is a tendency for humans to downplay the curse of sin and the reality of how radically corrupt every one of us are. Friends, without your sins forgiven by Jesus, you are unwelcome at his table. That's a fact. And anything that you do to soften that blow means that you are trying to stop people from seeking redemption. It does. You don't want to think it does. You, want, you just want to not offend people. But what if somebody needs to be offended? What if God has designed communion? I mean, it's kind of like baptism. He's designed communion to represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What if he designed it to perpetually be a sign to an unbelieving world? This is the cost of your sin. You are a sinner and you've sinned against a righteous and holy God and you need to be confronted with that fact. And that demands an answer from everyone. Exodus 13, 8 tells us this meal is to be, rem be a reminder from generation to generation of what God has done. Moses tells his people, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And so for Israel, it was the exodus from Egypt and God's work of doing it. The prophecy, though, has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. 
And in Luke 22, 19, it's the first place where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So just as Israel was to say, kids, this is about what God did to free us from Egypt, Jesus is about a greater adversary. He says, this is what God has done to free you from your sin. God loves you to the extent where rather than holding your sin against you, he's provided you a way of escape. Imagine how foolish it would have been for an Israelite to look to the rest of his nation leaving Egypt and say, I'm pretty good in my chains. I'm pretty good here under slavery. I don't want to be free. Well, communion stands as a monument to say, how foolish must you be to stay in the bondage of sin even when it would condemn you forever? Friend, you have nothing to offer God. All that you will ever bring God is sin. But He brings you the substitutionary work of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, and says, do this in remembrance of me. The sting of your sin bringing him pain accompanies every time you eat and every time you drink this meal. It's designed that way. Every time we eat and drink, we should be reminded, I'm a sinner. I am responsible for the death of Jesus Christ because only when you deal with the sting of sin do you ultimately deal with the reality of redemption and how great it is. Fourthly, that means that the Lord's Supper offers the hope and forgiveness of reconciliation. The Lord's Supper offers the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation. Communion doesn't just look to the past. Communion doesn't just look at the present. Communion also looks to the future. When Israel would look at the bondage in Egypt and be reminded of God's redemption, it gave them hope for what God would do in the future. Anytime you look at the history of God acting on behalf of his people, it is meant to give you faith in the fact that he can act tomorrow. He can act a week from now. He can act a month from now. He can act for eternity on my behalf. In Jesus, he did exactly that and continues to say, look back, remember what I've done, you can trust God to fulfill every promise he's ever made. In Isaiah 25, God looks to the future beyond the cross, even 400 years before the cross, to a meal that won't just be in reflection of the cross of Christ. Rather, it will be shared with Christ. He says in Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich, fruit, rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken it will be said on that day behold this is our God we waited for him that he might save us this is the Lord we have waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation 
That was written 400 years before the cross, but now we have the promise in Revelation 19.9 where John writes and he says, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Revelation 19.9 is about the fulfillment of the vision of Isaiah 25. And he says, in Christ, you've been invited to that table. But until that day, we don't share the rich food full of marrow. He says, reflect on what the cost of your sin was through the bread and through the cup. Friends, when we eat and we drink, we proclaim that Jesus Christ, because of his resurrection, he is king. He will rule forever and ever. And we are his people that will share in his kingdom. A few application points this morning. First, our faith must be built on what God has done in this world. We must look back. We must remember that if God can be trusted with redemption, he can always be trusted. Secondly, we must regularly take inventory of the validity of our faith. The Lord's Supper makes you do that. It makes you take stock of where's the evidence that I am a Christian. Thirdly, communion is designed to offend the sinner, to flee and trust Christ. Communion is designed to offend the sinner, to flee sin and trust Christ. Don't try to remove that. Fourthly, you can trust God with the future because Jesus is king. He's the king today. He'll be the king tomorrow. And here's the good news. He'll be the king for all eternity. 